Hey, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 15. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 31 and Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Genesis 31. Um, this is when Jacob leaves uh, the the employ of his uncle Laban, and he leaves Paddan Aram and essentially returns to the promised land. Um, so, <clears throat> as... As you recall from yesterday, this we had this weird uh, narrative, this weird story about Jacob wanting to, to get a flock of his own because he's worked so long for his uncle and yet has nothing really to show for it. And um, so he decides to uh, come up with some wages of his own. And uh, what he does is he says, well, I'll take any spotted or speckled uh, sheep, and, and those will be my wages for any other additional time when I serve you. So any speckled or spotted sheep that are born, um, I will, uh, I will, uh, those will be mine, and those will be counted as my wages. And Laban tries to trick him <laughs> by taking out all of the spotted and the shekeled, uh, uh, or spotted and spotted and speckled from the flock and putting them a three days journey away from Jacob. But then Lab, uh, Jacob kind of over, um, one-ups Laban by doing this weird thing where he peels sticks, puts them in front of the flocks when they are watering and when they are feeding. And uh, that is the time when they copulate. And uh, moreover, he only does this when strong animals are eating, and so he produces a flock of speckled and spotted um, he-man sheep, uh, holsters, a really, really healthy, vigorous flock of speckled and spotted animals. And so Jacob becomes a, a very prosperous man um, because the Lord is blessing him under the service of his uncle Laban, despite Laban's attempts to, um, to to trick and connive Jacob out of his prosperity and really the Lord's blessing on his life. Um, but eventually this comes to a head, and he hears that the sons of Laban are very dissatisfied from this, and um, because they're hearing that his flock is growing and everything, and, and they're very upset about this. Um, and so... Uh, and so the Lord appears to him and commands Jacob to return to the land. And with the promise, I will be with you. Uh, this promise, which uh, has already kind of um, uh, appeared in the Jacob narrative back in uh, chapter 28, when God told him, I am with you wherever you go, this promise of God's presence will become more and more important in the Bible, uh, especially as we start getting into Exodus. But the idea that God is with his people is very significant, and God is promising to be with Jacob. So Jacob brings his wives into the field, into the flock, which you could see kind of already <laughs> might be a tactic to increase um, the, the, um, the, the chances that they're going to go with him. Like, they're standing right in the middle of this weird-looking flock of only speckled and spotted animals and that but but also super vigorous animals and so it's like you're standing in the middle of the Lord's blessing um the Lord is with me okay it's it's hard to deny that and so 
um, they basically uh, have a powwow about the situation with um, with with Laban and the and Rachel and Leah are none too happy themselves uh, with how things have have fared. There uh, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Uh, verse fourteen, um, and uh, are are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he's sold us and he's indeed devoured our money. So. Um, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Uh, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. And so it sounds like part of their dissatisfaction is with the treatment uh, that they and, and the rest of Jacob's family have had at the hands of Laban, but also the fact that, um, as is also evident by the, the fact that Laban's sons are upset at Jacob, so also but they are um, uh they are they're they're citing the fact that Laban's wealth is significantly taken a hit because although he tried to trick Jacob, that kind of backfired on him. Um, the other thing that is interesting that I think is worth noting, and this speaks to the weirdness of the peeling of the branches in the last chapter. So, um, in verse um, uh, in verse nine and and ten and so on. Uh, Jacob is kind of like uh, describing what has happened, and he starts talking about a dream, okay? So he attributes the blessing to God. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me, verse 9. But then, in the breathing season, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And, and that's all that he says about that thing, right? And then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I'm the God of Bethel. Arise, go out from this land. Okay, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's this dream that he has where all he really sees is this flock that is all around them now. But what he does not detail in the dream is any instructions on how this would come about, uh, which I think is very suggestive, and a lot of commentators agree with this, that the idea about the peeling of the branches and everything is Jacob doing uh, kind of his own thing, trying to bring this about on his own, um, very characteristic of Jacob as we've seen, uh, perhaps even using something that we might consider magical, although it's unclear whether that would have been considered magical by uh, by Jacob. Uh, but at any rate, he thinks he's so clever in doing it this way, but in actuality, it, it is God who has brought this about for him. So God has blessed him, uh, perhaps despite himself, uh, per perhaps despite Jacob, um, uh, but it, it is significant that nowhere in the text is the peeling of the branches and the placement of the branches um, connected with God or commanded by God or even alluded to as coming from God. In fact, if all you had was this chapter, you'd have, you'd have no idea about any of that. So uh, Jacob arises and takes, um, and takes his, his, uh, his, his livestock and his camels and everything. And, um, <clears throat> This happens in verse 17 and following. And uh, what happens here is that the uh, it, it is time to shear sheep. Uh, 
And shearing of sheep is kind of like a big thing. Uh, Laban's got to be with his flocks during it. And he and and Jacob just goes while this is happening, while Laban is busy, and he splits. And he flees. And on their way out, Rachel takes the household gods. Uh, this is part of the reality of Genesis, okay? Um, uh on the one hand, in the Bible, household gods are never a good thing. They are, they are called in Hebrew teraphim. Uh, we encounter them also in the book of Judges. Uh, I believe it's chapter 19. Uh, might be 20, though. I forget which one. And then um, you also have this in David's household. Um, David sneaks out and uh, <laughs> kind of like the old put sneakers and basketball under your covers so that you're mom thinks you're sleeping there, but you're actually snuck out the window. It's the same kind of thing, but he puts the teraphim, the household gods, under his covers. And you're kind of like, well, what do these guys have household gods for? And um, there's a bunch of things that can be said for this. Um, uh, I think we'll get there when we get to David. Well, I'll discuss like what that's doing in, in David's household or in, in it's actually... Yeah, so we'll get to that then. Uh, here, I think it's just, it's simple enough to say essentially two things. First of all, this is Laban's household. Laban, uh, the, the, these guys live in a polytheistic culture. Laban does acknowledge Yahweh. He does acknowledge the Lord, um, El Shaddai, as he would have been known to Jacob's family. But he's not like a monotheist by any stretch of the imagination, and that's not surprising at all. So he probably just views Jacob's God, who apparently has given, is El Shaddai, the God of the fields, the God of the flocks, the God who has given Jacob this awesome flock and whom he thought he could take advantage of for his own good, did Laban. Um, but uh, but he probably just thought of him as one among uh, many gods. And so he's taking Laban's household. She takes Laban's household gods. The other thing as to why Rachel would do this, um, first of all, um, I, I, I think we need to keep in mind that Jacob is a shady character. And uh, this is not the last time we will encounter household gods in his story. Uh, secondly, um, there seems to be something in here about um, about Jacob coming to grips with God being his God. Remember what he said when he left Bethel in chapter 28. He says, if the Lord will do this, then will, will bring me back, then he will be my God. So it sounds as if Jacob is kind of speaking like a polytheist, like someone who's not totally on board with, with worshiping the Lord and the Lord only. Um, he definitely acknowledges the Lord. It's hard not to see that in this chapter, but whether or not he, he worships him exclusively is a question. And whether or not he would have been able to convert these two wives, Rachel and Leah, right away, uh, that's also a question. Uh, that's not to say that Rachel and Leah were rank pagans. It's just that, you know, we're not really told of them uh, you know, all we can really do is assume what their spiritual beliefs were. And that kind of leads us to the last thing that I'd like to just mention, and, and that is that we have to remember that God revealed himself progressively to the, to the human race. And it's not real—I mean, obviously, early in the garden, like, there's, there is only one God, right? But it's not—a lot has happened since then, and it's not as if— um, 
we have a lot of record of God revealing, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is no God beside me, right? That does, that's not included in what's said to Abraham and his family yet. We don't really get, have God talking like that, really until you're in Deuteronomy, although you do get hints of this already in Exodus, um, uh, especially with the Ten Commandments, although one could say you will have no other gods before me, for example, doesn't necessarily mean, and there are no other gods, okay? Uh, it could be one way or the other. So all I'm saying is that I'm not saying that other gods are real. I'm just saying that God um, pulled his people out of a polytheistic mindset little by little, and it's not always clear uh, what exactly the religious beliefs of um, all these individuals were, especially morally compromised individuals such as Jacob and um, and perhaps Leah and Rachel as well. Um, but maybe it's noteworthy too that it is Rachel who does it. It's not Jacob who does it or anything. Okay, so that's a lot on that, but I think that's an interesting question, and we'll continue to pursue that, of course, as we go through the Bible, these questions about monotheism and th- polytheism and other gods and, and things like that. Um, yes, I, I believe there is only one God. Okay, get that out of the way. Um, so she steals these things, and then on the third day, Laban finds out that Jacob had fled. Now, this is uh, kind of like a last irony in the story of Laban. So Laban, uh, Jacob almost gets away with this, right? It, it takes, he has got a three-day head start and Laban has to set up and really drive his people hard in order to catch him. Uh, why? Why did it take three days to get to him? Well, if you look back in chapter 30, verse uh, 36, Laban himself put the distance of three days between himself and his flocks and Jacob and Jacob's flock uh, in order that to, 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 um, uh, to stab Jacob in the back, right? In order to, to make it impossible for Jacob to access speckled and spotted sheep. So this is Laban's doing and it kind of backfires on him. So he goes and he rushes and, uh, after him. And, uh, while he's going, God appears to him in a dream and says, don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now that's a little bit of a weird uh, thing, right? Cause it's like, how do I talk to someone without it being good or bad? Uh, <laughs> isn't what I, what I say going to fall on that spectrum somewhere? What, what the heck does that mean? And I think that the answer is pretty easy. I think that's kind of like an idiom for just meaning don't say anything like don't like you're you you pretty much should keep your mouth shut which Laban kind of does not do and we see this and he he catches up with Jacob and he immediately pretty much lays into him and he's like I'm not allowed to to touch you or to do anything to you uh otherwise maybe I would um but uh and then he, Laban decides to lay into him with this uh with this uh kind of revisionist history. Um, note what I've been saying about this notion of sending away. Abraham's servant, send me away. Hey, let's try to get them to stay longer. Jacob, send me away. Uh, Laban, hey, well, let's uh, let's see how, uh, let's talk about, um, let's forget that sending away business uh, and we'll talk about your wages. And now um, Laban has this really rich statement in verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song with tambourine and lyre. Really Laban, is that what you would have done? Um, so 
and and you know I'm not even to kiss able to kiss my sons and daughters farewell. But again, everybody else in this narrative, uh, especially the wives, um, have have shown Laban to be completely contrary to this. Like that's not the type of guy that he is. And so this is. This is Laban uh, kind of like talking himself up. Oh, if only I had the chance, I would have given you guys this awesome party when you left. But, oh, snap, couldn't do it now. Uh, but how dare you? And, uh, in fact, he, he says this, this, this crazy thing in verse 43 um, to Jacob. He says, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Um, totally... Uh, totally off his rocker here, right? He's speaking to Jacob as if Jacob is a slave, um, as if he's his property and everything that Jacob has is his property, but that's not the case, right? Jacob is a free man working, paying a full good seven-year work for a bride price for both of his wives. No, those are Jacob's wives. The daughters are his daughters are Jacob's wives. Jacob's children are Jacob's children. And Jacob's flocks are especially Jacob's flocks. Like, that's what this whole ordeal has been about, that Jacob has, has, has bred his own flock. And, um, and so, yeah. Um, okay, one other interesting thing about this scene. Uh, back up a little bit uh, to, um, to what Laban is saying to Jacob uh, in, in say, uh, verse, uh, where, where does he accuse them of it? Um, oh yeah. Verse 30. So he lays this indictment against Jacob. And at the end of it, he says, why did you steal my gods by the way? And Jacob defends himself. He says, I was afraid, you know, that's why I fled at night. Uh, cause you, you've kind of been a jerk to me, Laban, frankly. And, uh, but then Jake, then Jacob, of course, not knowing that Rachel has the teraphim, the household gods, uh, says, uh, and by the way, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And it's like, oh my gosh, did Jacob just put a death sentence on his favorite wife? And um, notice the way it's told with suspense in many more steps than are needed to describe this. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants. And you're like, go into Rachel's tent. Let us know what happens. But he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent, as if he even has to tell, him, tell us that, right? And he entered Rachel's. What happened? What happened? Okay, here's what happened. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt all about his tent, so he's feeling about the tent. Now, this is an interesting uh, instance right here, okay? Recall that this entire ordeal is uh, that Jacob has had in Paddan Aram is caused by Jacob's initial decision to not trust God and to deceive his father into giving him his blessing, which triggered this series of events that has now led him to be exiled, in essence, in fear of his brother from the promised land for 20 years. So, and and what is the scene that instigated that? It's Jacob uh, pretending he's Esau and his father saying, come near and let me touch you. And that is a very uh, uncommon Hebrew word, to feel, to touch, This the verb that's used for this. Um, and that same verb happen, occurs the very next time is this. Here is Laban 
in this tense situation being drawn out, touching, okay, uh, feeling about the tent, just like Isaac felt apart. You're supposed to link these and think, is this the time when there's going to be poetic justice on Jacob? Is this the time when his own actions are going to come down on his head? And, but it says he did not find them. And you're like, whoo. And then you get this insult against these, these foreign household gods, right? Let not my Lord be angry, Rachel says to her father, that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. And she's sitting on them. Okay. Um, in case it's not obvious, um, now this is an ancient Near Eastern mindset. This is an ancient Israelite mindset. I'm not saying this is how it is. I'm saying this is what would have been the um, import in the minds of people steeped in Old Testament law. Okay, but if you look at the book of Leviticus, and we are not there yet, and we're not yet, I haven't yet described the concept of cleanliness and uncleanliness and purity and all of that stuff. But um, in, in Leviticus 15, 19, and 20, I'll just read that to you. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. Um, now, few short things. First of all, unclean cleanliness in the Bible is not synonymous with sin, okay? Mary had a period of uncleanliness after she gave birth to Jesus. Um, it's a normal part of the rhythm of life. But what it does is it means you're not worthy to enter into a holy—no, I didn't say not worthy, but you're not able to wor- enter into— um, the, a sacred, the sacred places of worship, the, the tabernacle, the temple. Um, you're not able to participate in that worship until you're cleansed. And if you're a holy thing, if you're, if you're an, uh, and, and here is, uh, you know, this, this, this concept applied to foreign gods because foreign people believed that, um, you know, non-Israelites who worshiped false gods, they believed that their gods were holy in some sense and that their gods needed to be pure. Um, and here is Rachel with these gods that she thinks is going to protect them, sitting on them and making them impure and thus robbing them of any holiness uh, that they would have been thought to have, even though, of course, they didn't. They're just pieces of metal. Uh, Read Isaiah if you doubt that. Okay. Um, So that's the story here. And then uh, Jacob and Laban make a covenant. Um, Note, uh, you've got several elements of the covenant, the the covenant sacrifice, which we saw in Genesis 15. This is likely the cutting up of the animals, the passing between them with oaths, um, the making of oaths. uh, um, uh, That's what he calls uh, the, you know, the names are, names are, are, are given about, about swearing and things like that. And then, um, and then they eat together. They have a meal together, which we saw in the covenant with Abimelech as well. And it's basically, you stay away from me, I stay away from you. And Jacob goes on to, um, to uh, back to the promised land. Uh, and he will be there soon. But there is one very important episode that we have yet to see, and we will be there tomorrow. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Matthew chapter 12 here. Uh, here, uh, Matthew 12 begins with two Sabbath controversies, and it's important to realize that the Sabbath for the Jewish people in the first century, and 
and before that is this extraordinarily important thing. And one of the tricky things, um, if you are a teacher of Old Testament law, okay, let's say you're, you're a, a Jewish rabbi or something, what does God say you're not allowed to, what does he actually say in the Torah, in the, in the Bible, okay, that, uh, that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Work, right? That's you're, to do no work on the Sabbath. It's to be a day of rest consecrated to the Lord. Well and good, but um, what exactly is work? Is, is you know, cooking work? Is cleaning work? Uh, what about walking really far? What about uh, carrying things, uh, even if you're not, like, trying to earn money or anything? Uh, what is work, and what constitutes work? And this is ultra important because the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant of Moses. This is, like, the center of of what it means to be a Jewish person is keeping the Sabbath. That's one of the things that marked them off from the Gentiles. Um, and and yet it's very ill-defined in the Old Testament. And so all these ideas arose about what constituted work on the Sabbath, and, and they tended towards over-strictness. Because, again, if you're a teacher of the law in first-century um, uh, Palestine— um, you're likely very concerned because you're back in the land, you're back in Jerusalem, you have a temple and you have sacrifices, but Caesar is emperor and Herod is your king. And like, <laughs> what the heck is going on? And so a lot of the Jews of this time viewed themselves still as in, like, as the exile having not be been completed. And if that's an unfamiliar term to you, um, stay tight. Hold tight. We will discuss that in 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 days to come. You will know what that is by the end of uh, this year. Um, and so, you know, we have to be extra pure. We have to, and we got to make sure everybody else is too. Hence, Pharisaism. People who are super concerned with with high levels of purity and want to hold other people to it as well. And so, Jesus's um, disciples are plucking uh, grains. Uh, grains in a, a field and and crunching them as they go as they're walking, and they're criticized by the Pharisees. Look what your disciples are doing. It's not lawful to do that on the Sabbath. What are, they're they're reaping great. No, so I mean, and that could have been what Jesus said, right? Like you guys are being ridiculous. All they're doing is sticking out their hand and pulling stuff off, and gotten into some dispute. But that's not how he addresses the problem, right? What does he do, say? He says, have you not read about how David entered into the holy place and ate the holy bread, which only the priests were allowed to eat? Okay, what what does that have to do with the Sabbath? Okay, how about this? Have you heard about how the priests serve in the temple on the Sabbath and they're working, so what gives? How is this an answer to this? Well, it's an answer because what Jesus is saying is that in God's economy, in the way that God has set up things, in the very scriptures that you guys acknowledge, and in the very worship system that's going on in Jerusalem right now, um, we realize that uh, that certain individuals of of significance in God's eyes and what is happening uh, take precedence over. Uh, the strict letters of the law, let alone letters that you Pharisees have come up with yourself as a way to interpret the law. 
Okay, so so David is not chastised in the Bible for eating bread that only the priests were supposed to. Why? Because he's David. Okay, and 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 not only that, but uh, the priest gave it to him because he's fleeing from King Saul and his men needed to eat. Um, and then uh, what what about the priests? It's because they're priests and there need to be sacrifices on the. So obviously there are some things that. Uh, that kind of trump these laws, right? And these things are in the Old Testament that's themselves, right? Like, uh, so it, it's almost like a, a dispute over biblical interpretation in a way. But then David, kick, uh, Jesus rather, kicks it a notch higher, right? And says something greater than even the temple is here. So if we're if we're flowing with biblical uh, theology, guys, you need to realize that uh, that now there are again, new wineskins that are needed. There is new fabric that is needed. And uh, on top of that, um, notice what he says on verse 8. And this is, uh, you know, certainly in line with it, but this takes the cake. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Think about that. We've 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 already mentioned we've already looked at some of these like crazy things in Matthew that really hints at at Jesus being something something very special, right? Um, his deity, in fact, uh, his authority to forgive sins. Who is it that even the winds and the seas obey him? He teaches the law as one with authority and not as their teachers. And now he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, that's one of the Ten Commandments, and you're saying you're the Lord of that Ten Commandment? What is that saying? What is Jesus claiming for himself there? Um, this, of course, is is part of this uh, rich biblical tapestry that uh, that is uh, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, the Jesus's oneness and equalness, equalness, equality with the Father uh, in terms of his deity. Um, And you can imagine how that would have struck pharisaical ears. And then he goes into the Sabbath again. Here's another Sabbath controversy. And there's a man with a withered hand and they want to test him. And they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And and Jesus basically just says, you know, if you have a sheep and it falls into the pit, aren't you going to lift it out? You know, and this guy is of more value than sheep, and of and and of course, and 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 it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, guys. You you guys are getting this this thing wrong. And then he says, "Stretch out your hand," and the man stretches out his 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 withered hand, and it was restored healthy like the other hand. And it's at that point that the Pharisees say, "That's it." And they conspire against him how to destroy him. Two strikes on the Sabbath. This guy's got to go. And that's really the first time in Matthew, if you think about it, that you really have this pharisaical um, opposition, strong opposition to Jesus. Um, Finally, in uh, verses 15 through 21, Jesus splits and many are following him. He's and he's telling people to keep it secret. Remember, we've talked about the messianic secret, and uh, that secret uh, is to fulfill uh, something that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here's that idea of fulfillment again. Uh, and what he quote, what Matthew quotes here is what what are called one of what are called Isaiah's servant songs. And these are these songs about this servant of the Lord 
who eventually will be the suffering servant who will die and be pierced for the iniquities of God's people. Uh, but early on in the early so- servant songs, that servant is Israel. You know, Jacob, you're my servant. You're my chosen. Uh, you're going to be a light to the nations. But then they fail at it, right? And so God appoints a new servant, a servant who will truly fulfill the servant of the Lord role, the role as portrayed in the servant songs. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and Jesus is that. Note that um, Jesus was connected with that suffering servant in Matthew in chapter 8, verse 17. But so this is a, this is a quotation of Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. And then uh, in verse 21, that final phrase um, uh, is from 42, verse 4, but in the Greek translation of it. Um, uh, Matthew is going off of what's called the Septuagint, the ancient Greek. Um, he doesn't do this all the time, but he's definitely using the Septuagint here. Um, and uh, that's not to say that the Septuagint like messes with Isaiah. Uh, this is an issue I don't have time to go in and, and would have to go into like uh, Hebrew and Greek and stuff like that. But uh, I will note that people who are troubled who might say, well... The Hebrew of Isaiah, at least as we know it, um, I, uh, of Isaiah doesn't say that. But, um, uh, of course, you just have to read the the chapter and see that uh, there's plenty of God's servant being a light to the Gentiles. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. Um, he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his, his law Uh, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring prisoners out of the dungeon. So that's all over the place in, um, in the servant songs. So it's certainly there. Uh, I don't have time to go into why the Septuagint differs from the, uh, Hebrew Masoretic text, but, um, well, I think that that's, uh, probably enough for today. Thank you. And, um, I look forward to, uh, day 17 with you tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. Bye-bye.